Keisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar! Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym. The acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We're all born with it, a hidden power inside of us. It's a fire that is often suppressed by fear. That power is your Roar and it's waiting to be unleashed. Today, I'm excited to continue our spotlight on entrepreneurs And our guest today is Mr. George Tinsley, or as I like to call him, Mr. T. I was so fortunate as a young person to have had the amazing experience of working with Mr. and Mrs. Tinsley, one of the most successful African-American couples in Florida. They own the highest grossing KFC franchises in Florida. Mr. and Mrs. Tinsley gave me an opportunity that forever changed my life, my first job at KFC. Mr. and Mrs. Tinsley and their family own more than 50 restaurant franchises in Florida and Kentucky, including many airport locations that are anchored by restaurants such as Chili's, Wendy's, KFC, P.F. Chang's, Chula's Bar and Grill, Comfy Cow, and many more. His brands dominate at the Tampa International Airport, Miami International Airport, and Louisville International Airport. He is a six-time Hall of Famer, a millionaire entrepreneur, leader, motivator, coach, and most importantly, a family man. George Tinsley is all of these things and so much more. The summary of Mr. T's continued road to success is a rags to riches story. Faith, tenacity, education, and a relentless desire to turn his obstacles into opportunities are the true gifts that catapulted his life to where it is today. If you were to bet on a person who was likely to succeed, you would never have bet on George Tinsley. The odds against his success would have seemed far too great to overcome. Mr. T had to overcome an environment of extreme poverty while growing up in one of the toughest inner city neighborhoods in an era of open racial intolerance. By letting the values he learned early in life serve as a guide, he was able to overcome the circumstances of his childhood and beat the odds to achieve great personal success as a serial entrepreneur. I am so excited to have him on the show today to gain insight into his success as he shares the outlook the mindset, and the methods that helped him and Mrs. Tinsley build a multi-million dollar empire and empower the success of many others along the way. Let's welcome Mr. Tinsley to the show. Good evening, Lakeisha. It is my pleasure to be here with you. I am excited. I am too. I've been waiting for this all day long. Wow, I tell you, as I shared earlier with the audience, I mean, you have just had a phenomenal career both in basketball and now as an entrepreneur. And of course, with Mrs. Tinsley, which is your partner in crime, you guys have been together for over 40 years, right? 48 years. And that's counting 
48 years of marriage, but we uh, were dating and so forth four years prior to that. So I'd say we're over the half of 50 year mark. <laughs> but uh, yes, you're right. I love it. Well, I tell you what, you know, you and Mrs. Tinsley uh, were just invaluable. I was so fortunate and blessed to meet you guys as a 14-year-old kid in Haines City, Florida at KFC. And that moment in time forever changed my life. And I'm so grateful for that. And I can't tell you again, I know I said I'm excited to have you here, but audience knows how much I adore you and Mrs. Tinsley. And I mean, I've learned from you guys over the years. And so I just thought it is so apropos to have you on the show. I've been doing some, a series on entrepreneurs and uh, you guys are the holy grail of entrepreneurs. So excited to talk to you about what you all have been able to do over the last 30 or 30 plus years um, in franchises. So uh, let's launch in. <laughs> it's just exciting to have an opportunity to, to reconnect and talk about things. Uh, certainly, uh, we were blessed to have you come into our life, uh, as well as uh, others that uh, came in with that sparkle in their eyes, ready to conquer the world uh, <laughs> at an early age. And so that makes it easy to uh, uh, to get uh, goals established when you have those kinds of people around you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, before we launch into your career, um, and again, basketball, to buckets in terms of KFC and then, then beyond. We'll talk about that. But I love to give the audience an opportunity just to learn a little bit more about you, your background, where are you from, and maybe who were some of your biggest influences growing up? Well, so Keisha, both my wife and I are from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. She is from the West End of Louisville most of her life. And I came from the East End of Louisville all of my life is living there. The uh, my uh, uh, school years and uh, and in my early development. So uh, that's our that's our home base, and uh, we still call home, but our second home, if you will. Uh, we have business there, so we get back to uh, uh, Louisville quite a quite a bit. So. Um, Starting off, uh, you know, uh, it was an unusual beginning, very, very unusual beginning for myself. I was I was adopted. Uh, my uh, mother was a working mother, and she uh, left me with uh, a babysitter. And in those days, uh, a lot of people kept people's children when they were working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but uh, she had an unusual and maybe unusual, but she was not married, but she had three older kids, three kids that were older than me and having a tough time and uh, left me with a babysitter and she went off for a job out of town and uh, just never come came back. So uh, the babysitter who was 65 years old and couldn't read or write uh, was um, had one leg, uh, She'd been in an accident when she was a child, and it, uh, her, her uh, right leg never never grew its full length. So she uh, had one leg, walked on a crutch. She couldn't read or write. She made her living, uh, early living, by uh, cooking meals and serving to people who worked in the area. So she was always an entrepreneur, if mm-hmm. you will, and in those days for black. And uh, she kept uh, children. and. Uh, I had an older, there was an older late girl 
that 17 years old, older than me, who was adopted also. Uh, she had had she'd been staying with her for uh, quite a while. So that became my sister. And, it, and, and our living conditions were just one room, uh, no, no running, no utilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were sharing the, uh, mm-hmm. that room with uh, others in, the, uh, in this uh, bigger house. And so we moved around Louisville early in my early days and, and uh, went to stay with uh, another one of her family members outside of the city until I was actually old enough to start school. And then we came back to Louisville and I started elementary school then uh, under uh, the Tinsley name. And uh, of course, uh, never been formally adopted. So my real name was Penny Baker. She raised me as Tinsley. And in those days in the black schools, they didn't do a lot of checking with the birth certificates and, and things of that nature. So uh, as as I grew, I became Tinsley. And, and uh, it was just her and I. We bounced around a little, mostly in one room and, uh, uh, until I was 13 years old. And at that time, she got sick and she had to go to the hospital. And, and so I went to stay with her son. She had an older son. And uh, went to stay with him and his wife. I stayed with them. And my mother got out of the hospital. And soon after she passed. So they raised me from that point on, from the seventh, eighth grade on to uh, on into high school. And then all, when I went off to college, I went off and I was on my own. So that's kind of a high level view of uh, my early beginnings. So, I mean, it sounds like you know, one, with the circumstances that you faced as a young person, right? I mean, she pretty much raised you as her son. And so everything you described, right, really speaks to a sort of perseverance, determination, despite some of the obstacles that you faced in Smoketown. And so when you think on back on your experiences, right, because there were many, and, you know, it sounds like they weren't certainly the most desirable circumstances, but you learned how to persevere. You learned how to find, I would call, your roar. Um, and we're going to talk about really the result of you finding your roar at an early age, but maybe what stands out as a defining moment in your life where you just realized that, you know what, despite my obstacles, despite my circumstances, I still can be a successful young man. So it was that moment occurred when you were a young person growing up in Smoketown, or did it occur when you became a student-athlete? Well, it, it occurred, uh, Keisha, when uh, when I was in the fourth, fifth grade, and that's when integration came in Louisville, and mm-hmm. uh, the black school closed down, so we had to move to the closest white school in our area. Well, when we, uh, when we were moved from uh, the black school to the white school, we all had to take a test because the white school, their curriculum was uh, much further advanced and, uh, and their goal was to place us in the right position. And I don't think that the teachers there uh, and, and the school was all white, teachers were all white. I don't think the teachers were too excited about all of these new kids coming over. And uh, so uh, whether they were black or not, I'll, I'll leave that to them, uh, what the opinion was there. But uh, when we came and, and we took those tests, a lot of us uh, didn't qualify to be on on reading scales and on different writing scales and, and so forth. And so uh, I was one of those that had to be had to go back and spend another year in the fourth grade. So um, I, it was a four fifth. It was a kind of half and half grade. 
So that was the very mm-hmm. first obstacle of rejection that I could clearly see. And it was my first interaction with uh, with white people on a regular basis. Uh, the, the school was interracial adult, but uh, uh, my mother, she, they, they gave her, uh, the lady who raised me now, they gave her a sheet of paper to sign. She couldn't read or write. There was a X on, on there, so they told me that she needed to sign it. I, well, I took it home, showed it to her. Uh, she didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. I signed her name, took it back, okay. and there it was back in the fourth, fifth grade. So that was the very first obstacle that because uh, that really shook me because I was taller than all the other kids mm-hmm. and everything. But, you know, that was my first rejection. Uh, within the next year or so, I was. I was somewhat of a class uh, cut up, if you will. That was my defensive mechanism because mm-hmm. I pretty much yeah, wore the same clothes day in and day out. The kids can be cruel and different things happen. And so uh, uh, that was my kind of my counter. And, and then also being put back uh, a year as well. So uh teacher called me up in the uh up front and said, George, uh, why don't you just quit school and, and go wow. to work? And I remember it like it was yesterday. And I just looked at her and I smiled and, and I always smile fairly easy. So I looked at her and I smiled, but inside it, it really hurt me. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, it wasn't anything unusual for black kids in those days to leave school to go help, go work and help with the with their uh, family. And of course, in, in my, in this particular family that was raising me, no one had ever gone any further than the fourth grade. So Mm -hmm. it would have been common, but it would have been okay probably with, uh, if I had taken that advice, but I was determined to show that I could do it. So I smiled and I went back and sat down. And, and from that point on, I started, started shifting it to another level and was the determination kicked in very neat and I passed to the seventh grade and when I went to seventh grade in the junior high school uh there was a little this little white teacher beautiful lady so uh took me and pulled me under her she saw me going to um uh gym all the time to play whatever sport was going on and not going to lunch and she and the she and the gym teacher were pretty close they were good friends as well as uh, a music teacher so uh, she found out uh, background, started bringing me uh, bananas and apples and different things, sandwiches. And she gave me a job as the uh, as a projector boy, to, which meant that any time that uh, the movies were being shown throughout the junior high school, that I set those projectors up and, and ran the film. She taught me how to do all of that. And the deal right. was, as long as I did, as long as I kept my grades up, I could keep that job, which got me out of the classroom and moving around. I have felt real good about myself, self-esteem. And, uh, and she was, as I said, bringing, bringing the food. We had those little lunch tickets that the uh, poor kids got uh, received uh, and that uh, had signed up for them. And I was embarrassed to use them. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's why I was going into the gym. Uh, and I love to uh, participate in athletics. I was pretty good in just about every sport, and so that that was my that was my comfort zone. Uh, but she brought me out of my shell, started developing a low self esteem and feeling good about myself. But still had those 
I still had to deal with those conditions on a daily basis. But that's that's where the change, I think, in my life started. So I started feeling good about myself. And that was a 16 millimeter reel, real, real <laughs> film that you that would break and you had to splice them and right. so forth. And I was only I was the only one who could do it. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, you know, I love what you said, right? So it's kind of a tell of two coins or, or two sides, so to speak. On one side, you had a teacher that said she didn't see your potential, right? She saw, right. she looked at the outside, not at the inside. And then you had right. another teacher who looked at the inside, not at the outside and saw the potential. Correct. And uh, right. that really was what you needed, right? Just someone to say, I see you, I see the potential and I want to help you, right? That's what educators right. are supposed to be about, to see the kids maybe where right. they may not be, but how do we get them there? You know, you hear that saying of, it takes a village to raise a kid. And mm-hmm. that, that, you know, so I was matriculating through that village as I was um, as I was growing. And I saw the kindness that was coming to me. So I always had it in the back of my mind once I was able to achieve that I was going to uh, uh, to give give back. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, you've been turning obstacles into opportunities throughout your you know, entire life, Mr. T, personal and professional. Talk about how you capitalize on your intellectual ability and the athletic gifts to navigate yourself to a better future. Talk a little bit about that journey. And uh, you've had tremendous success in athletics. So I'd love to hear about that, too. Well, you know, I was always able to take advantage of opportunities that came my way when doors opened in athletics. As I got into high school, I wasn't the greatest of athletes. Uh, wasn't uh, the best person on my uh, high school team, but I started because I worked harder mm-hmm. and I did the dirty. I did the dirty work where some of the other guys didn't feel like they uh, wanted to do it. When I when I played basketball, I played uh, played on the basketball team. I was a center. I was skinny as as I'll get out, but I didn't mind getting in there and banging. I could jump, I could run, I played good defense. So that got me in the starting lineup, which uh, was being in there. Uh, you know, my skills grew as a sophomore. When I ran track, uh, I ran the toughest race. I ran cross country. I ran the quarter mile and above. And and those those were not the attractive uh, uh, events, but but I did them because. Uh, I felt that I had to work harder and throughout the years and in athletics and uh, and other things that I did because I worked hard, because I was always willing to give, go that extra mile and, and give a little bit more. I, I was always put in position to achieve and that's, that opened the doors and I, and I took advantage of it. I wasn't that great of a student and a, and a big part of, I, I attributed that to is because no one ever checked my grades. No one ever uh, checked to see uh, my, re- you know, report cards when I got it and things of that nature because nobody had ever been any further fourth grade, as I mentioned. So they didn't they didn't really understand that. So I did enough just to make sure I was eligible to be on the teams. Uh, and and there a lot of kids that were successful uh, or A students, B students, they were looked at as being square. And they all, those kids dress nice and shoes, shines on the shoes and so forth. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't match up with any of that. Absolutely. So I think uh, just the C level was, was a secure spot for me, enough to get by. Then I realized uh, when I moved in, it was while being in Smoketown that there is well, the one block that I lived in, 900 block of South Jackson Street, uh, which I'm still proud of today. There were so many guys 
and girls in that block that went on to college. And mm-hmm. so when I realized that you could go to college and you can further your, you know, your education, you can you can make more money and all that, then then it all started coming together. So I learned to do, you know, a little extra here and there that prepared me for the, the next step. I think that's where the beginning started. Yeah, because I mean, I know uh, to your point, right? So different things you, you began to see um, revealed to you. So you, it motivated you to, to, to push to achieve more. And because you pushed right. to achieve more in the classroom and because of your athletic ability, I mean, you were recruited on, on scholarship to Kentucky Wesleyan College in, in the 60s. And as a freshman, you led the team to the first of three Division II NCAA National Championships. Three NCAA National Championships, right? So yeah. talk a little bit about that journey, right? I mean, it, to your point, it says to me the determination, the focus, the willingness to outwork anybody and the desire to be successful, it really, to me, was a guiding force. So talk a little bit about that, because, I mean, I know that that, that college experience really set you up for the next phase of your life. Yes, the my college experience, uh, I say, would be second to, to none. It was a great, great experience. Uh, going into this little, and it was like it was out of a out of a book. Going into this little small college, uh, uh, the coach of the basketball team had actually coached at my high school. He had left the year before I got there. One of the players on the team was my high school teammate. He was a year ahead of me. And uh, we we were good friends. He he was down there. They had they had a decent team, and so they recruited uh, me uh, among other schools. They recruited me, uh, but I felt comfortable because I knew them, and it wasn't that far away from home. I left uh, Louisville with a bag, a paper bag, with everything I had in that paper bag, and <laughs> and went into uh, to this little small college. But to me, it was a big college. Right. And uh, brand new experience and so forth. We can go in walking in there with the uh, athletic uh, side of it. I was as a freshman, I made the starting five because of my defensive ability, because of my they always called me example A. And so everything that the coach was preaching uh, as far <laughs> as defense positions, as far as I always did it to the T. Wow. And, and because I'm fun, I was fundamentally sound, so I didn't have any flaws, and so he felt comfortable with me uh, being in there. I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't the highest scorer, I wasn't the, the best rebounder, but I was right in there. So that got me in the starting lineup, Akisha, and mm-hmm. we had a great, we had a great year. We won the national, the, the uh, small college division two national championship because of that. We we uh, were uh, we got an opportunity to go to uh, Europe and Africa to teach basketball for the whole summer. Well, mm-hmm. nobody in our nobody in my neighborhood or throughout Louisville had uh, gone overseas other than going to Vietnam War had, or gone going to war had gone in a, as a representative of the United States as a goodwill ambassador, which is basically what we were. So doing that, my whole horizon grew like crazy and nobody as i said on my block said where are you going and that you know so i'm going to africa you know <laughs> London, and it's what you know so going through that whole experience it uh it really really helped me uh and now my grade point average was 1.75 that year 
first year in college, I did not understand how college worked as right. far as being on your own and managing your grades and all that. I and I did a very poor job of doing it. Not only me, but my 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 teammates, the guys I hung out with, uh, uh, they did a little bit better. But I was on academic probation, so. Uh, the whole time in over there, uh, traveling and over there, I knew that when I got back, I had to get my grade point average up to 2.2 or 2.1, I think it was, to be eligible to play. Uh, I was going to be on probation and, uh, uh, and not able to play. Went straight back to the college, jumped into the class, and uh, and we were off again for the, the next year. We were ranked number one in the nation and rolling through that my working on my grades and we were winning games and but right as we got into the to the championship I got sick and uh was not able to play for one of the games. We lost that game and we came in third place. We won the constellation game, came in third place. So that was the only game that my team actually lost in the four years of college. And I don't count it as a loss because I didn't play. So, right. <laughs> so I right. tell I tell people a little trivia. I played four years, played in four championships, never lost a game, and won three of them. So you figure out the rest. I tell people. All right. But uh, yeah. So anyway, you know, going through through college, I um, you know won every award you can just about you can think of. Uh, academic uh, became that made the dean's list. I had an opportunity to play in the U.S. Olympic trial for the U.S. Olympic team. I was an alternate. I busted up my ankle in the in the finals, but did that. I made All-American uh, two years in a row. Uh, I was most valuable player in uh, both regionals and nationals. Got drafted into the NBA and the ABA and the U.S. Army uh, in my senior year, and and just just a perfect uh college career yeah. both on campus and and uh in the in athletics so, so tell us I, a little I bit about your work. time if i because just phenomenal career and you you kind of snuck in aba right so I, you know i've got to unpack yeah. that so tell us yeah. a little bit about your time um in the aba and the nba right i'd like to know a little bit about that experience because again i, I feel like you know your sports mm-hmm. career the winning sports career in a lot of ways and just your perseverance from a young person through college and the likes really set you up for a winning career off the court as well. So talk a little bit about the, the journey you had in the ABA and then how, how did that career in sports prepare you for your next steps in life? Okay. Well, let me just, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. Sure. Uh, as I, each year at, through college, each year I got better as a person. I got better as a, as an athlete. And I think mm-hmm. uh, my wife, she came to college in my in my junior year. She was a freshman, and uh, because of our relationship, she was challenging me to do better in not only academically but also uh, athletically. She was just a kind of that rock and, and the person I could talk to and and felt comfortable with uh, letting my guard down and 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 so forth. So. I think through that is where yeah, I took a giant step in my overall uh, ex- college experience from my junior year on. And we both were, uh, we won the May King and Queen. And now we're, she was the only black female student on campus. And I was the only, 
I wasn't the only, I was a black male on campus. That's a campus of all probably 98% uh, white students. So you said that at Kentucky Wesleyan, it was 98% uh, a white student body. And you're saying you right. and Mrs. Tinsley were the king and queen of the campus. Was that first in the, the university's history right. as African-Americans? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the first and probably, I don't know if it was the last, but it was definitely the first. That's what happened in our in our junior year. So that was a whole new above the norm situation that happened there. And, and, and because of that, once again, that uh, was another milestone at Kentucky Resident and also in, in my developing career. Well, in my senior year, as I said, I was drafted by the ABA, which is an American Basketball Association, and I was drafted by the NBA, which is the National Basketball Association. The ABA had just started in 67, I think it was. And so they were two years, three years into existence uh, when I graduated. They were very competitive and, and um, going after uh, college graduates and uh, athletes. And so um, they offered me uh, money up front and as a poor kid and, uh, you know, wanting to uh, have an opportunity to make it, I, I jumped at that versus going to the NBA. The NBA, I was, I was drafted in the sixth, sixth round uh, in the NBA, which in, in those days, it wasn't that many players. Sixth round, I was like number 76 as far as players drafted. In the ABA, I was drafted in the second round. So, uh, you know, I got a signing bonus of $10,000. Uh, bought me a brand new GTO, and I was uh, in hog heaven, you know. And, right. <laughs> and uh, you know, versus going to the NBA and having to try out for all these different teams. But I didn't know at the time how unstable the American Basketball Association was. So I was drafted by Oakland, uh, California. Before, when I signed, I got my money. Probably before uh, I was, the summer was out, the team was sold and they moved to Washington, D.C. So uh, I never actually went to Oakland. I went to Washington. I played there for the Washington Caps in the D- in D.C. So that was a short off trip uh, rather than going across country. I uh, went there and I played with some great players, Rick Berry, Warren Jabali. Matt Calvin, uh, uh, Dr. J, uh, just a number of great players. Players in the ABA were were just as good as the players in the NBA. The only difference was the ABA, the NBA probably had better centers, but that was the the business. And so I finished out the year playing there in Louisville, playing in front of my friends and family uh, that was there, and and so it was a great ride. I, I uh, was. Uh, yeah, came off the bench and played quite a bit. had a had a pretty good year and played real well in the in the uh, playoffs. But like any upstarting company, the very next year they started changing. They drafted new players, changed things around. Right. So into into the season, I got cut. So I uh, went to work as uh, working with young kids in the area with the school system as a homeschool coordinator and and spent the rest of the year doing that and also playing a semi-professional ball in Chicago and Illinois and in those areas to keep my skills up to go back out again the next year, which I did and wound up making the team down in Miami, uh, the Miami Floridians. That was before, They were before the heat. So I played down there for a year and like same scenario, 
Uh, Miami folded. They shut the team down. All the players were dispersed to different spots. And I was traded to uh, uh, New York, sent to New York. And so uh, that was my, that's where I was headed. But what happened that particular year was that was 1972. I got married. I found my real family, my mother and my father and my 16 brothers and sisters. And that shocked my whole world, all of that. And it, I think it took my focus away from really concentrating on my games. I was running around the country uh, visiting uh, my brothers and sisters in, in Kentucky and Indiana. And, and I just got married. I starting a new family and so forth. So it was one, 1972 was one, one heck of a emotional roller coaster year. And so when I went to New York, I, uh, I made it through the first round. And then uh, I got handed my walking papers to go to Dallas uh, for the, to play on the team down there. Well, I decided I just got married and all this stuff happened. I was going back to Louisville. I had, I had a, been offered a job as a coach uh, at my old high school. So I decided to go back and do that. And that's uh, that was kind of the end of it uh, as far as actually playing professional ball. It closed out the career, but it didn't end the relationships that I had with all of those great players and uh, coaches that I met during that particular time. Because there's another part of my career later on that, that I'll mention that brought us all back together again. Absolutely. Well, again, you know, to your point, I mean, a storied basketball career, college, uh, ABA and ABA and the likes. Right. And so, you know, you earned your degree, you know, again, phenomenal career in basketball. And then, you know, you were able to see the world, as you talked about, through basketball, you know, uh, the Olympics, uh, Africa. How did you transition from winning in the game of basketball to winning in the game of franchises? Talk a little bit about that journey. Okay, and, and I might mention I was the first uh, first black athlete to graduate from Kentucky Wesleyan, also. So that was a uh, that was a milestone. Also, most all most of the other guys had dropped out after their four years and and didn't stay around to graduate. So I was I did graduate. I made the uh, made the dean's list, and I was also I won the Oak and Ivy Award, which is the highest award that a college that the student college offers. I gave to a student, a student athlete, and so uh, I was I was extremely proud of uh, of that achievement at that time. So yes. uh, what happened was when I went got into teaching and coaching, I uh, applied the same skill set and determination to what I was doing with the coaching. So in coaching and teaching, I was a better coach than I was a teacher. Got to be honest. And uh, I wanted to give back to those kids that uh, like some like coaches that what they meant to me. So we we were able to win the state championship in track every year. I was I was coaching there. We we won the state championship in basketball one year. We were runner up another year. And then the third year where we had our had a, our very best team, we got beat in the region. But that was the, the the very best team that we had. We had two All Americans on that team, and and they went on to play at the University of Louisville and do a and Daryl Griffith, who played in the NBA for twelve years. So we had great, just great athletes. It just uh, it was just not uh, in the cards for us in that senior year. But that was a, a leadership development for me going through that. 
but it also uh, made up my mind. I'd done and given back what, what I could at that time, but I had a wife and I was starting a family, so I had to do something different. And that's when I started looking around for other opportunities. I got a job, got an offer to be become an FBI agent. I passed all the requirements and uh, uh, was signing up to go to Quantico, Virginia to start my start a career in the FBI. But along came uh, KFC, offered me a uh, job as a training instructor with their company. And they're in Louisville, and they were just developing a training center. Well, with my teaching skills and, and my leadership skills, uh, helped there as well as I knew one of the guys inside who uh, vouched for me and so forth. So that's how I got into the, the, the corporate setting going in. And, and lo and behold, I'm working with the colonel, actually teaching basic management course. And I fell in love with it. In case you have me not. I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the teaching aspect of it. I enjoyed the business aspect. I knew nothing about business, but I was just all in. I mean, I was there an hour before all the other instructors and would be the last one to leave, just absorbing everything that I could, both uh, technically from the company as well as my students that I had. I was learning from them, taking on their war stories, and also having the opportunity to work alongside the colonel. Uh, which was two days a week. So that whole three years of doing that, I grew immensely um, in my knowledge and, and understanding of business. And uh, and I knew at some point I wanted to become a franchisee, but, you know, I knew that, it, you know, you had to have a million dollars liquid and I did not have that. So uh, I knew it was going to be a long road, but I, I made up my mind that that's where, where I wanted to go at some point in my life. And of course, my wife, she was, she, had, uh, she was a school teacher and she had decided to go into the private sector. Matter of fact, she went in before I did working in the radio business. So we kind of uh, started moving away from education. We had done that. We both were wanted to give back, and, and, uh, but also wanted to pursue our careers and make money. Because at that time, teaching school, uh, my first year, I made fifty-five hundred. That was that was my teaching salary, and uh, and yeah, I made probably another uh, five hundred dollars uh, coaching uh, uh, during those years. Gotcha. So you know, talking about, I mean, the I mean, the opportunity you had to work alongside the colonel and really understand the secret sauce of that finger licking good chicken, right? But you know, and you got the bug, right? I think. Yeah. You, got the bug to take what you were learning and, and as you were training other franchise owners, you know, you and Mrs. Tinsley had the idea to start something yourself. So I know in, in, in 1982, that was the beginning of Pingeo Inc., right? That was a manifestation of the dream that you and Mrs. T had to kind of create wealth and build up your family's legacy. It was 1984 when, uh, when we started our company, but leading up to that, I had worked eight years with KFC and I worked in various different, different departments and my last stop was as a franchise manager in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, working out of Jacksonville for everything from working with all the franchisees from Atlanta down to Gainesville and over to uh, St. Augustine. So those three years of, of working and helping those people make money, become millionaires, it really was that real bump that, that I needed to figure it out. Along came Jesse Jackson and uh, Operation Force, 
and they created uh, pressure on some major corporations, and they did on uh, uh, Pepsi or R.J. Reynolds at that time, and R.J. Reynolds owned KFC uh, at that particular juncture, and so uh, they started bringing in uh, African American and minority, other minorities, to uh, get into the program where uh, they got guaranteed financing for the seven years, and then uh, which gave you enough time to build up a little equity and to be able to refinance and take take on that uh, financing yourself. And so after three years of doing that, I finally got an opportunity to open, to open my uh, have to open my own restaurant in Arbondale, Florida. So that's how we got to that point. We both she quit her job, went to uh, training chicken school, she says, and. <laughs> and uh, we, we started developing in uh, in Armandale, opened our first restaurant. Uh, as a matter of fact, 40, no, 36 years ago uh, this month. Wow. We, uh, we opened in, in Armandale. And uh, after uh, opening that up, Akisha, the first, the first week that we opened, it was so busy that... Uh, we had to actually. I put a sign up on the on the the uh, drive-through outside and on the windows. It said that our our equipment had broken down, okay. uh, which it, it really it really had not. We had broken down. It was so okay. busy. I had I had no idea that it was going to be that busy. So it was a great location, and we uh, you know there wasn't that many black businesses in Polk County, uh, if you will. So. When we uh, when we opened, it was somewhat of a little spectacle, if you will, and mm-hmm. and um, we achieved um, great things. We were uh, one of the first million dollar restaurants uh, in one year. The average sales for KFC was about six hundred fifty thousand, and uh, we did one million their very first year. So we were doing so well, Absolutely. and we were paying our paying our bills down. That we decided the very next year to start development in Haines City. So we opened uh, a year and a half later over in Haines City, and that's where I met this wonderful young lady named Lakeisha Gunther. Uh, and we, we we kicked that restaurant off, and it uh, it it did uh, right at a million uh, the very first year there. So we had $2 million restaurants. A- extremely excited. And, and so year three, year three and a half, we went to Baseball Boardwalk and opened that store, that restaurant, and boom, that's where the bottom fell out. That restaurant okay. did not yeah. did not perform uh, like the other two, so we we kind of struggled through that one. Uh, while that happened, Keisha Arbendale caught on fire and burned down. I don't know if you remember that. I it do remember. Down. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it burned down. They felt like the bottom was falling out, but. I'd been through all of this. We had been through all of this. And so we had the, you know, we knew what we needed to do. And right. so while uh, the, the story, and this was a great story, uh, while standing there, you know, on the parking lot and seeing this restaurant burn down, I, I the traffic and all of our employees were crying in the street and uh, different people were coming over offering their condolences and so forth. But because of my athletic background, my drive and so forth, that I'd made up my mind, this was not going to going to stop us. We were going to bounce that bounce back. And uh, so I, I was watching the traffic, and these lunch trucks were all 
lined up because the they little Rochemobiles were going around delivering lunch. So the thought came to me, let me get me a truck and let me sell chicken out of that truck. And while we were building this restaurant back, so I, I bought a truck. We put two warming cabinets in it, the refrigeration unit, the cash register, and so forth. I know you remember it, it had the little little clucking chicken uh, clucking in it and so forth. And I followed all of those lunch trucks where they were going, their schedule, and uh, got it down so I would get to Haines City and to uh, Baseball and Boardwalk early in the morning, load up with product, and then go and be at those locations before the lunch trucks got there. And we were actually doing uh, $1,500 a day out of the truck. KFC on wheels. We would actually load up in uh, Haines City and we and in uh, baseball and boardwalk, and then we'd go beat those lunch trucks to those sites and sit out there and sell. And and uh, I'll never forget uh, we would go to uh, State Farm Insurance. They would actually run us off the lot because because all the all the employees were coming out lined up outside the <laughs> trucks. Of course. You know, they had a lunch program there at the uh, at State Farm building. So we had to park across the street. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was one of those uh, miracles that, uh, you know, it wasn't something we had planned. And, right. And uh, but it, it worked out and it, it gave great motivation to the community, to our employees to let let them see that, uh, you know, you can always uh turn the dark dark uh, cloud into uh, sunshine. So um, uh, we were excited about that. But what happened uh, at the time was I decided to start uh, growing our business even more so. So we bought uh, four more restaurants over in the uh, West Coast with uh, KFC. Uh, those restaurants uh, didn't do, do what we thought we were going to do with them, uh, what we had projected them to do. And so um, uh, we felt there was something uh, uh, going on uh, that we had no control over. So we decided to sell those back to KFC. And then we started diversifying. We got into the airport business and we opened the TGI Fridays in, uh, in Tampa, in the Tampa airport. And uh, this um, it did amazing. Uh, you know, and that's quite a story that uh, might tell you at some point that just turning obstacles and opportunities. Uh, that was a tremendous story, but that's that restaurant became number one in the nation for nine years in a row. Just uh, blew the doors off. And that was uh, the TGIF was number one nine years in a row. Yes, yes, we did. Uh, we were doing over nine million dollars a year over there uh, wow. with that restaurant. So, and then we started growing uh, you know, more restaurants there in Tampa. We had uh, there in Tampa a total of uh, of eight restaurants there. We we went into uh, Went into Miami. Uh, we had uh, 22 restaurants down there. We we went into Louisville, um, and we had uh, uh, 12 restaurants there. So uh, we had those three markets plus our KFCs rolling at that time. So we really started evolving, and we started looking at other opportunities, other business ventures, and and so forth. But uh, it was all uh, a team effort. Uh, George and Penny, my son and my daughter, mm-hmm. they were. Uh, they were somewhat involved in the business. We had some a couple of other family members. Uh, we had you guys that uh, grew up in the business, became yep. uh, man- managers uh, that uh, managed the restaurants and 
And so we've always been fortunate and lucky there where we found the the Wendy Gabaldons, the uh, Lakeisha Gunters, the mm. uh, Lisa Stevensons, the Valerie Jones, the yes. Catherine Clark. And in those <laughs> last two, I mean, they, Catherine and, uh, and and Valerie have been with me 36 years. Uh, wow, from the know, beginning. So we, yeah, from the beginning. So, wow. um, so that's how we kind of turned the different obstacles that we, uh, what we, that we ran into, uh, into, uh, you know, opportunities to uh, continue to grow and continue to give back. Absolutely. So, you know, what would you say have been the key to success for you and Mrs. Tinsley? What sustained you over the years? I think that the one root is that we complement each other. We're the yin and the yang as far as working together. And uh, it, we, we have two different personalities, but we've been able to work together to get to that next to that next level. We're both very we're both what I would probably call overachievers. Uh, we're achievers, but we, we probably overachieve because we get so many opportunities. It actually gets to the point I got to the point, uh, Lakeisha, where it turned down opportunities. Uh, and um, because we just didn't have the infrastructure to be able to take on all of these different things that were coming our, our way. But we, we've always felt like we can we could achieve, we could take on a challenge and uh, be able to start things out using our character and our personalities and our drive to motivate our people and to uh, to be able to take on those challenges using those particular brands in the, in the restaurant business, those particular brands that we have taken on. In other words, we, we've got Chili's, we've got Starbucks, we've got Wendy's, uh, we've got KFC, you know, we've got Shula's, we have uh, different brands that we have P.F. Chang's, uh, Payway, those are all brands that are under our wing. So we got our own brands, Bourbon Academy, uh, and uh, we've got a Cup of Cow ice cream. We've been able to take those brands, which they have their own identity. We've been able to add our identity to it and be able to take their plan and their procedures and add uh, what we, how we want to take care of our customers and be able to be successful because we care about our people. We reward right. them uh, and uh, we motivate them. And then in turn, they take care of the customers. We don't believe in negativity at all. And so uh, there's always there's always some way that you can improve things. But being negative and this doesn't work and that, you know, that just doesn't fly in our in our repertoire. So uh, uh, I think that's that's another reason why we've been a, been a successful. We've been able to adapt. Love it. Yep. Adaptability, flexibility. I mean, and yep. what, you, what you're what you talking about is you guys created a phenomenal culture yep. within the organization, KFC and the likes, right? I mean, for us, it was possibility thinking. It was customer obsession. It was, you know, white glove treatment. It was teamwork, you know, all of those things. And as a young person at the age of 14, walking into an organization, seeing you and Mrs. Tinsley, you know, phenomenal African-American leaders, right? who were vested in our success, not only our success in the restaurant industry, but our success in life. And um, right. I absolutely believe that's certainly been, the, uh, to your point, the cornerstone for your success. 
You talked about a few um, opportunities, maybe where it didn't work out in California or, you know, what have you, uh, boardwalk and baseball. You know, what would you say is maybe one of the biggest mistakes or failures that you guys had to navigate through? And what did you learn from it? Well, we, we've learned we've learned that uh, to do your due diligence in moving into new locations or expanding too quickly. Uh, baseball and boardwalk, we didn't we did not do our due diligence. We wound up spending about a million five in a development where the really uh, we shouldn't have we shouldn't have invested more than. Six hundred thousand, and uh, if it if that number if that didn't work, we probably shouldn't have gone there. But because we've been so successful with the first two locations, we felt that it was just going to going to work, and so that was our biggest challenge because there's there was so much uh, preliminary work that needed to be done with that particular restaurant. If you remember, there was a service station next door, so we had to drill wells. Uh, testing wells all around that property mm. and uh, to be able to make sure there was no contamination. So by the time we finished that, all of that, I, as I said, I had a million five in the ground and that restaurant wasn't going to do a million five. It, mm-hmm. did, uh, it didn't do as well as the other two community stores. So that didn't work. We, we put everything into it. it. Didn't work out. So we learned from that. The second biggest mistake we made was I bought a TGI Fridays in Lakeland, Florida. And I didn't do my due diligence there in uh, in really researching what was actually going on. The location was good, but uh, the employment situation that we had there had uh, was a lot of negative stuff going on. So uh, we got in there and it took us uh, after a year of uh, really trying to turn that around. We uh, we hung on for another year. I finally closed that restaurant down. So at one time we had the number one TGI Fridays in the nation, and we probably had the lowest volume in, <laughs> in the nation. So uh, once again, it was uh, a little bit of not doing your due diligence. So we learned from those experiences uh, of what to do the uh, uh, next time. The um, Even the KFCs that we bought in um, over in uh, the Tampa Bay area, that was... Um, a bad experience also. And the other side of that was uh, developing the infrastructure inside to be able to manage the uh, the, the span of control. And uh, so um, uh, once again, uh, a challenge there. So every year as we grew, as we moved forward, we it was all a learning experience. And so finally, that's why we wound up with, with so much of our business concentrated in the airport because it was a little easier to be able to control one airport with uh, with the supervisory and, and the way we need to be structured versus uh, running from one city to the next city to the next city, trying to be on top of uh, all the different restaurants. Technology that we have today was not in place then. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, today, I can sit in my office and I can... I can uh, manage every business uh, and watch the business through uh, transaction by transaction versus uh, where I had to go to the restaurant to get uh, paperwork to be able to understand what was going on because we didn't have a polling system, but uh, that we're in that's in place today. Today, I can tell you exactly every time my orders rang up in a restaurant, I can pull it up right in front of me. 
and, wow. uh, and see what's going on. So that's the difference in, uh, in that. So the span of control is a lot better today. And, and uh, we're, we're still uh, pretty active. The other part about all of this, uh, Lakeisha, that I didn't mention is that community-based side. And that was one of the great things that we had going for us. While I was doing the operations, my wife was doing the community work. And she was working with the chambers and in Arbondale and and in uh, Winter Haven, and I was in a chamber in Haines City, and and uh, so we worked the outside of the business uh, as well. And she did a magnificent job there, working with uh, the youth in the in the uh, in those communities. If you remember Cola, and you remember the other functions uh, that we had uh, for all the kids and. and taking them around to colleges, looking at colleges, and and uh, just different things. So uh, we have a lot of Pingio family that we call you guys that went on to do great things. And we would always talk about what the Lakeisha Gunters and the uh, others that had gone on and left and gone into their own areas and doing real well that still we still maintain relationship with that. You know, it, it helped spur on uh, the employees that we had. I mean, we have doctors, lawyers, engineers, and, and so forth that that spent uh, their high school days working at restaurants. And some of them, either, even in college, uh, worked at the restaurants while they were going through college. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to your point, you've gone off to do so many great things in different career fields and and industries, right? And you taught us the importance of uh, paying it forward. And so I'm just curious, you know, you really focus on building a legacy, a family legacy, right? With George and Penny and, and to your point, all of us, right? Because we've been a part of the Pingio family for so long. You know, talk about maybe the next chapter for you guys. Well, the, the next chapter, if I hear my wife, uh, if I listen to her, she's ready for retirement. She's ready to uh, She's ready to hang it, hang it up, but uh, you would never know it by, by watching her every day going at it. Uh, she does a lot of national and local community work, uh, as well as still manages the uh, office operations. So uh, she's more in the mode of uh, next step being uh, a retirement. And I'm not too far behind her. We're, we're grooming George to take it over and uh, the operations side of it. He now runs our Louisville market in our in our uh, Miami markets, and he's uh, he's getting into the uh, into the Tampa area and, and Fort Myers. We we have Wendy's also in our in our brand in our portfolio, so uh, we can go or keep any one of those areas if we decide to move forward. That pretty much depends upon uh, where his goal is. I sit on a number of uh, national boards of. Uh, of, uh, and work with brands, so um, the opportunities are there to uh, to take to the next level. It's it, George and uh, two of our nephews. We have one in Louisville and one in one in uh, in Tampa. That now doing they're working for other companies, but in a heartbeat they would I'm sure they would come back and join forces with George and and uh, take on um, another level. So. We wait to see what happens there. As I mentioned to you early on, and being playing professional basketball, I became the uh, chairman of the Retired Players Association. So I was on the board of the National Basketball Retired Players Association for a total of seven years. And I still stay in touch with a lot of the players 
that uh, some are active, some have uh, went on to retire, like Tracy McGrady and and um, you know uh, Warren, um, I'm sorry, Dr. J and and uh, just you name it. At one time, I was in total touch with all of them, but you know there, there's some opportunity for some partnerships with uh, professional athletes to uh, to do some other things. Also, you know we we uh, are more in the conservative position now as far as our own funds uh, reinvesting. Uh, you know we think very hard about what we want to do on new development with this COVID situation and what's happening in the, in the United States today with with the politics and uh, uh, the COVID and the emotion around race relationships and, and travel industry has just been impacted uh, tremendously. So there's a lot of variables out there today that we're really watching and paying close attention to as far as our next move. Always looking for the new norm. I mean, when door, one door closes, another door always opens up. So, you know, we got our eyes on things and we're, we're, playing around with different ideas and seeing which way we de- we decide to go. This COVID situation definitely has to be cleared up because it's going to, uh, I think the uh, United States is going to have to come to an agreement on uh, protecting ourselves by, with masks and, and shutting down some businesses, uh, bars and, and things where, uh, People are gathering because whether we want to believe it or not, this it's real. Very much so. Very much so. Let me ask you this, right? I mean, I know, you know, as, as a successful entrepreneur, you're probably, you and Mrs. C are highly sought after in terms of looking for advice. What is some of the uh, advice that you have for entrepreneurs or franchise owners? Well, I, I would say that, that definitely keep your eyes open, looking at, uh, looking at opportunities. There are a lot of opportunities that have come that are going to come available, especially from a female and minority standpoint that, that are out there. But you need to do your due diligence uh, uh, and uh, make sure you have a plan, uh, a performer, if you can, if you understand what the business looks like, performing it out, making sure you have uh, uh, cash cash on, on hand that, uh, that you're able to invest. You don't want to throw your whole life savings into anything. In these days, uh, you, you want to accumulate the point of investment. Consider partners uh, if you want to bring on a partner, but don't bring on a partner unless you absolutely need a partner. That's my recommendation to you. But um, you know, if you, you 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 let's say if it's a food and beverage business, you want to you want to make sure you go with the best brand that has all the resources that are going to help you to be successful. And that's marketing, and that's training, and that's. Uh, uh, you know, research and development, that's uh, assistance in the field, that has a good reputation. You want to look at their franchise disclosure documents to see what their historical uh, performance has been. All of those kinds of things, even up to including, uh, I would go work in that particular business for free if I have to, just to learn a little bit about what actually goes on. Not the negative side, but both sides, the good and the bad, so that you know what you're what you're getting into, and uh, and make sure you you have yourself set up to uh, to be able to hire some good people and uh, people that you can manage and and uh, understanding that you're going to have to delegate. You can't do it all yourself, and I think that's why a lot of people fail. They try to try to do it all. They try to be on top of everything, and you just you, you just can't do it. So. 
it's a, it's a lot of preparatory work, but you got to really want to do it and really be be willing to work. If you're not going to be willing to work in the business, hands on, understanding it yourself up front, you can't depend upon anybody else to do it. It just does not work. Wow, that's some great advice. That's some great advice. You know, I'll wrap up with this. There are a couple of things I want to close us out with, right? I mean, I know you've you've written a book called The Determined Entrepreneur, right? And I think everything that you've said on the podcast really speaks to knowing what your North Star was and where you wanted to go and just what kind of led you to kind of put pen to paper on that? Well, you know, keep, keep in mind that I had the advantage of actually working in the business that I chose to get involved in. And my wife had worked in a business, and so she understood the the administration of the business, the the, uh, the accounting, the the how to how to handle your taxes, how to handle payroll, and those kinds of things. I understood the operations and how to manage and handle people and how to handle customers. So those were tools that we had going into the business, uh, and that's. That's something that you have to learn, and then we were able to learn it and get paid for it while we were while we were learning it. So um, that, with the determination that we wanted to do something on our own, and and we could do it and raise our family, and uh, raise the kids uh, at the time because uh, they were small, it just all worked out. It wasn't easy, but it worked out. So that was what helped us do it, and keeping in mind where we came from or where I came from, from the standpoint of being adopted and, and living in one room and, and not knowing where the next meal was coming from and so forth. Everything was uh, so much easier than it was in those days. So I, I understood what it meant to come from nothing to work into uh, success. So uh, when you understand how to get to success, Coming mm-hmm. from nothing, you and you you know that you you knew what it took. It took then you always that can't be taken away from you. So you right. can always when that restaurant burned down, a lot of people would have probably thrown their hands up in the air. Would have been able would have probably blamed it on somebody else. <laughs> would uh, even even commit suicide. You know, it, I mean that was a, a million dollar restaurant that had a large investment in it and so forth and. And, uh, you know, we could have quit. We could have folded yeah. the tent and, uh, and went on. But because of where we came from and how we got there, uh, I was prepared to, to scrape. We actually scraped that parking lot within uh, two days and started construction, had the plans drawn up and started construction the very next week. So um, and we got it open in 60, uh, 65 days. So wow. and bigger and better. Yeah. So that's, uh, we've never been able to do that had we not had a major brand behind us like KFC and having worked at KFC, I knew the people inside, uh, there was sensitivity there. There were people offering to help. Hell, I had the FBI that was investigating. They thought we'd burn down the restaurant <laughs> because, because, because baseball and boardwalk was, uh, tanking and so forth. So they felt we were trying to collect insurance or right. do it. I mean, they, they went all over Winter Haven investigating us. I mean, it's a true story. Had people saying that the Klan burned the restaurant down. Just all kinds of things that we were dealing with, with that. So 
I had to clear all the clutter out of the way, stay focused on what we had to do, keep my family going, keep my employees going, and and uh, and, and plow on uh, through it, you know, without it. missing a beat. So yep. fortunately, with, with the background I came from, I mean, not knowing where I was going to get my next meal, not knowing uh, if I got home, whether mama was still going to be alive, because she was right. sick, and uh, we had to, you know, didn't know where the next meal was coming from. So, yep. Love it. Love it. So is there anything else you want to share with the audience before I wrap up? I want to wrap up with a round of questions and I want to make sure I let them know how to stay in touch, right? Through website. And they've got a podcast turning obstacles to opportunities and just a lot of rich content there. The books that determine entrepreneur. We want to make sure that um, everyone who's thinking about a business goes to grab that. Anything that you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? Let me, let me tell you a quick story about how we got into the airport business. Tampa Airport has what's called a uh, RFP, which is Request for Proposal. And they have those that come along every end of every term of contracts, every 10 years, every eight years, and so forth. Well, I got a call from a friend at KFC that said that there was an opportunity possibly at the Tampa Airport and that uh, I should... Uh, uh, go check on it and maybe apply because they would like to see a KFC there. And I was the closest franchisee and a minority franchisee, which is is the, the airports have minority programs. So um, I went over and checked it out and found out that, uh, well, they they were looking at uh, someone coming in, and, but it, but everybody had to put a proposal together. So I had a friend in Atlanta. I called him. He, he knew a guy out of California that had worked in the airport environment with HMS host. And so uh, he connected me where we, we, uh, we talk, we, I called, we talked on the phone by the end of uh, the next day, he had flown into uh, winter Haven or flown into to, uh, Tampa. I picked him up. We, uh, we got together. We put the, took us a week. We put this proposal together and went over and bid on putting a KFC in the Tampa airport, along with uh, some other food in a, in a little uh, strip area. And uh, uh, we bid on it uh, haphazardly. We, we were doing the best we could in that one week. Typically, it takes six months, and sometimes people put in as much as nine months in planning and putting together for these RFPs at that time. And uh, so anyway, we bid on it. We lost. And uh, after we lost, we were, we were down, dejected. Uh, uh, on the way there, let me back up, on the way there, uh, I'm driving breakneck speed, trying to get to the <laughs> to the to the office uh, to turn in this uh, proposal, and we had to turn in five copies. So he's in the back of the car, correlating, putting stuff together. I'm driving <laughs> through traffic, in and out, weaving, bobbing. We get there, run through the airport, get it there. Well, we lost the proposal, and uh, so we stopped at this little bar in the in a restaurant. And had a had a beer and just kind of crying in our in our uh, beers about losing it. And we were watching on TV the O.J. Simpson uh, case. They were going through Los Angeles and so forth. So we looked at that and said, "Well, you know, even though we're having a bad day, he's having a worse day." So it was, you know, it was kind of a kind of a joke, right? And laughed about it. So on the way out of the airport, we saw this uh, white tablecloth restaurant that was our former restaurant that was closed. Nobody had been on it. Maynard Jackson in, in Atlanta had withdrew his bid. So uh, next morning we called 
and uh, before he left to go back to California. And they said, yeah, you can put something together for that. So real quickly, we started calling different companies, seeing who might be interested in putting a restaurant in the, in the airport. And so finally, I got Friday, asked them about it. They said, yeah, they would be interested. So uh, we, we I start my qualifications, become a franchisee, because I was already a franchisee with KFC. So we, we applied for that. Nobody else did. Uh, we applied. We, we were the only ones. We, we wanted, but we went to the, that little bar that we stopped uh, in, which was right on the corner. We asked the host who had owned that bar, well, will you combine that bar with us and we'll have one big space and we can put in this Friday's? And they said, sure. And we got the, that's how we got wound up getting the Friday's there. That Friday's, uh, the, the bar had been doing a million a year. And uh, that uh, little little guest, that little restaurant that we that we bid on, it was doing about eight hundred thousand uh, a year. So uh, it, it, together, it's one point eight million. So we put them together. We put the Fridays in there. The first year we did uh, two point four million. The next year we did three point five, and in year five we were up to nine million, and we did wow. hit nine million for nine years in a row. So. That's uh, where we went there. We lost the bid. That was the obstacle. Uh, we saw the opportunity. Uh, we went after that. And we turned the whole thing into uh, a successful business. Uh, that Friday's, which opened up because we were so so successful, we opened up and we, we actually uh, acquired a whole airside uh, about five years later. And then that opened up Miami, the opportunity of Miami. So my wow. point, the story there is that, you know, we could have folded, went home, gave it up, but we kept at it and we turned that into uh, uh, 35 restaurants and, um, you know, in about a 10 year period. That is amazing, Mr. T. Wow. Okay. So you, the KFC yeah. opportunity didn't work out, but the TGIF Friday opportunity worked out because you guys didn't leave the airport empty handed. You saw an empty spot and you said, what can we do with that? And so you'd made something out of nothing so to speak. And the rest is history. That is an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Wow. Sure. So I'm going to give you some time back, but before I do that, I want to just have a little bit of fun with you uh, as well and, and maybe ask you a few questions to round us out today. So I'll say a word or a phrase and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. What's your favorite food? Chicken. Okay. <laughs> what's your guilty pleasure if you have one? Maybe basketball, but what's your guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasure is eating ice cream uh, late in late in the evening. What's your favorite book or a book you're reading right now? Well, the, my favorite book I'm reading right now, and I'm just starting on it. Where to go? It's Black Wealth. So I'm looking at the history of uh, getting into the Black Wealth, the history of Black Wealth. Oh, fantastic! Uh, matter of fact, the book just I just got it. Just got it in. I, I've got two of them that I'm uh, starting into because I want to be able to uh, give some historical perspective to some of the younger younger African-Americans in the area. What we're all going through here today, I want to give some examples. I talked to them about wealth, but I want and versus being uh, being rich, if you will, what wealth means and how you transfer that uh, uh, down. I want to give some historical outside of, uh, you know, what we're doing, uh, give some more historical view of it. Love it. Love it. Current Netflix edition, if you have one, Netflix. Do you watch Netflix? I have not in a while, but 
I did uh, 20, what was the name of the, I can't think of the name of uh, the show that I watched. I'm one of those, uh, uh, if I'm interested in a show, I will stay up to three, four o'clock in the morning <laughs> watching all of the series to try to try to get to that boom, you know, the, 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 oh, the ending. End, I know. Yeah. 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 It's never, it never, <laughs> so mad, but I get, I get 24. I don't know if you remember the series of 24. Yes. Uh, I love that so much. We, we actually went on a vacation to uh, down in South America, and I took videos with me to, <laughs> to watch, <laughs> to watch it, it. <laughs> uh, while we were on vacation. So, yeah, I get, I get hung up occasionally. Now, my favorite pastime now is just watching these basketball games. Yep, yep, especially right now with the NBA back on. What's your right. dream vacation? The next place that you and Mrs. T want to visit once we can travel again? To uh, – it's in uh, Middle East area. Hmm. Uh, what is the country over there? Um, well, I mean, there's Dubai. Dubai, 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 <laughs> Dubai. Yeah, Dubai. was fortunate enough to travel for my sorority event, and I love it. It's one of my favorite places, uh, along with Abu Dhabi. So it's been a wonderful yeah. time chatting with you, Mr. T, and uh, I will definitely be in touch real soon. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, and, I'm, and I appreciate you doing it. Good to reconnect with you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time, 